fake news. You know, I remember the first time I heard that phrase and it made me cringe. The first thought, though, that crossed my mind was, damn it, we're going to have to live with this for a long time because it's a catchy phrase and it's anchored on a strong emotion. So every time I report something or I do an interview and I post it online or I post it on social media, now I go into a battle with thousands and thousands of people who are spreading nothing but lies and non-factual stories. And then at the same time, they're attacking me and calling me fake news. And it could be disheartening, but I got to tell you something, like a lot of my peers, I believe in what I'm doing and I'm going to keep pushing forward. And I can also say this, we journalists have a powerful ally. Not that long ago, the folks at the St. Petersburg Times, now the Tampa Bay Times, launched a small but brilliant project, PolitiFact. It's a dedicated group of people who are fact checkers, and they scour through the media and social media at every comment, tweet, and anything that's ever said by a politician to make sure of its validity and that it's actually factual. This is an important tool, not just for reporters and newsrooms, but for readers and for citizens, for, for taxpayers. Because now you can see how much of a politician's speech is based on fact and how much of it is maybe partially true or even completely fake. For this week's episode of The Reporter Studio, we spoke with Angie Holland, editor-in-chief of PolitiFact. And we started by asking, where did the idea for this come from? For, for the average person on the street, how do you define PolitiFact, the, the mission, and, you know, when it all started? Well, PolitiFact is a national politics fact-checking website. We started in 2007 as a special project of a newspaper. Um, back then, it was the St. Petersburg Times. Today, it's the Tampa Bay Times. And uh, it was something that uh, um, was the brainchild of a journalist named Bill Adair, who he, he just had a personal belief that there needed to be more fact-checking in political journalism. And he recruited a team from the St. Petersburg Times newsroom of which uh, I was a member. I worked in the news research library and uh, we started fact-checking the 2007 uh, presidential primaries for the 2008 election that ended up as the contest between Barack Obama and John McCain. And we've been fact-checking ever since. So when people come to our site, they see uh, speakers who are making claims, and then we are rating the claims for truthfulness on our truthometer, as we call it. So you can uh, look at the list of things we fact-checked and look at the ratings and quickly get a sense of, of relative accuracy. And our ratings are true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, balls and pants on fire. <laughs> I love the pants on fire one. That's, <laughs> you know, it, something so fascinating about this is, um, and I wondered what you've experienced uh, talking to newsrooms around the country is, I mean, a lot of newsrooms don't have the resources to have 
someone who's just devoted to fact checking. Obviously, as journalists, we all have to be fact checkers on some level. But I think about, for example, um, you know, in my day job, I do a, a daily talk show. And, you know, we get politicians in all the time. The tricky part, of course, is, well, I don't have that fact checker. My producers are in the other room. And if something is said, if they can check it quick enough, they'll get back to me. I've got to be on my toes, though, to be able to challenge. If anything, we're, you know, what we figured out at this point is try to anticipate the answers beforehand. So I'm as ready as I can be. In some cases, it's easy because, like, if I have a politician who, you know, like last year was telling me, well, you know, the election was stolen and there was a lot of fraud. Obviously, I knew that argument. I'd heard it many times. We had all the facts. I was able to stand there and, and challenge back. But that's not always the case. What do you see in newsrooms? And, you know, the challenge of fact-checking themselves and being on top of this stuff the way that you guys can be. Well, I think journalists are learning it as a, a part of their skill set. I mean, thankfully, I think it's becoming a very standard part of the journalist skill set that they know whatever the topic area is that they're covering, they have to be keeping up with the fact checks of that topic area. Now, I mean, it's a little harder for general assignment reporters who do different things every day. But for the beat reporters, um, and I've talked to a lot of beat reporters around the country, like they're, they're quite on top of all the fact checking work. I mean, thanks to the internet that I think we take for granted, it's possible for a journalist who's trained in searching and uh, curating content to go out and on the internet and search for the major fact checkers work and evaluate it and maybe look at some of the controversies around fact checking work. There are a few little mini controversies and come to their own conclusion. So I do think, um, I've seen journalists grow in their sophistication of handling um, fact-based uh, corrections as they interview, but it is really challenging. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really like to watch every presidential year is watch the, um, the moderators of the presidential debates because uh, some of them have to deal with um, some very high profile um, falsehoods and they have to be ready on their feet to correct it. And it's really interesting because if you watch enough of these and I've watched them all since 2007, um, some of these moderators are just superbly prepared. I mean, they must prepare for it the way you would prepare for like a, you know, the bar exam because they know um, they seem to be ready for everything. Um, I've noticed Jake Taffer of CNN when he moderates debates, he spreads all these papers out on a desk in front of him. And I have to believe there's like notes and fact checks there for him to be, you know, just, well, that's not accurate. Or what about this? You know, I think some politicians, uh, they're a little bit easier sometimes because, uh, you know, they say the same thing. I mean, it's the party line. And you, you, you've heard enough interviews, you know what they're going to say. So you could prepare to an extent. You're right. Sometimes they surprise you. I, I think that, you know, it, yeah, doing your homework ahead of time, really important. I will say this. I lean so heavily on, I really do depend on that producer in my ear constantly. And I could see them off in the corner of the room and I'm just, <laughs> I'm just looking at them like, help me on this. <laughs> so, um, I wondered, you know, since uh, the late 2000, early aughts, uh, late aughts, when you started uh, the the meter and 
since then, I've wondered what the response has been from the audience. And I asked that question considering what you've seen in how politicians have changed behaviors over elections. So I, I don't know, what, what, do you, what have you seen from the audience, from the readers and, and the audience about this? The audience reaction has been very interesting. Um, I, I think I hear personally a lot from people who feel passionately one way or the other. Um, so I get regular emails from people who are like, thank you, PolitiFact. Thank you so much for what you're doing. It's so important. It's the only thing that's going to save democracy. Please keep doing what you're doing. And I love those emails, obviously, but like I never got emails like that when I was doing my standard journalism stories. I mean, I think the people who appreciate fact checking um, really have a personal commitment to truth telling and find this format of journalism because it's, it's basically a format. It's the same basic skills that all journalists use, but we're using this intensive um, fact based format and um, the audiences love it. But now in recent years, we've become the focus of a lot of um, audience anger. Um, people are like, oh, these are fact checkers are just, you know, they're not really umpires. They're the liberal media. They're trying to put their thumb on the scales. Um, and like, but worse than that, like you'd be kind of horrified by the profanity and some of the emails I receive. Um, so there is that. Now I should add, in addition to still fact-checking politicians, we fact-check a lot of social media claims, a lot of viral misinformation. And we, like other fact-checkers, are in a partnership with Facebook that uses our fact-checks to screen false content. And so that, and I mean, literally like put a screen, if you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, you might see a grayed out box that says, independent fact-checkers have questioned this, this post claims. And that's brought us to an audience who were not looking for fact checking, didn't particularly want to be fact checked, and some of them uh, become irate that um, that fact checkers have this role in social media. Let me turn it on. You know, going from politicians, let me turn it back on our industry. And you know, I, I mean, I could spend a lot of time talking about the history, and, and I'm sure you know a lot of it as well. The history of news media in this country, and 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 how things have evolved and gone up and down and here and there. But right now, when you look at the landscape from television to print to radio and anything online, I mean, what's the state of our industry right now? What, what do you think about? It seems to be really in flux. And uh, the biggest players are the ones who are doing the best. And the smaller newsrooms, um, have struggled, especially local news. Um, I don't think anyone would really dispute that. Um, so, I mean, it feels like we are in flux because like the print advertising model is busted. It's kind of done. Um, I think they're, um, and so now we're in this like online world where all this advertising revenue um, is kind of controlled by these platforms, Google, Facebook. Um, so that's kind of, uh, that's hurt news a lot. It's hurt journalism. Uh, there's still a lot of media and entertainment, but it's hurt journalism. Um, but there are still some bright spots because um, now I think we're starting to see the growth and spread of nonprofit newsrooms. 
And I would put PolitiFact as part of this. I mean, we started as a newspaper at the newspaper, but now we're owned by the Pointer Institute and we are um, a self-sustaining nonprofit newsroom. Um, and there are other nonprofit newsrooms that are doing great work. Um, it's just so hard to separate all of the different social dynamics that are driving what's happening to the news right now, because some of it is online. So, you know, some of it is easy access to online information. Some of it is the advertising model. Um, some of it is people's ties to, to local areas. I mean, we really do seem to be moving toward a national culture in ways that we didn't see that like 30, 40 years ago. Um, so it's kind, of, it's kind of a perplexing time. I mean, if you asked me uh, like five years ago, when I, well, let me put it this way. When I look back five years ago, I'm astounded at all the change. And I wonder how many more changes we'll see in the next five years. You're hearing Angie Holen, Editor-in-Chief of PolitiFact from the Pointer Institute. We're talking about the origins of the fact-checking service and the challenges of fact-checking in real time. This podcast is a production of the City of Dreams Media Incorporated, and you can learn more about her and PolitiFact's work on our website, thereporterstudio.com, or you can go to YouTube, watch a video of this interview at The Reporter Studio. And remember, if you love the content, please subscribe, rate, and review, but also share. I'm all about sharing. If you think there's value in this podcast, please share it. I want to hear from people who have never met a journalist. I want to hear from people who think that the news media is fake. And I will say this, some of it is kind of fake, but I want to help clarify some things. Post your comment on the website or find me on Twitter at News Media Host. Now let's get back to our conversation with Angie Holen from PolitiFact. She has some thoughts on the golden age of journalism and also the loss of this thing called the bright. Was there ever a golden age for journalism, do you think? I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it's kind of hard to say. I will say in my career, kind of the sweet spot was when the internet um, was just coming into play. And, um, you know, there was still all this long form print journalism, like magazine profiles. And, um, you know, back in the 90s, I loved reading these long magazine profiles of, of um of politicians or celebrities or public thinkers. There's a wonderful profile of Roger Ebert that I think it ran in Esquire that is just like one of the best articles I've ever read. And you could access all that stuff on the internet. Um, but then I think like, I've been kind of discouraged by like the lack of long form uh, profiles, magazine writing. Um, newspapers do, used to do just a lot of funny, quirky, um, happy stories in local journalism, we would call them brights. And I've had some discussions with my colleagues, like, you know, it feels like one of the things that is making the media so negative is the death of the bright. It's like, well, why don't we do the bright? Well, you know, what drives clicks online, anger and fear. So the bright is being like, uh, <laughs> uh, on the brink of extinction, because of these online algorithms and the clicks and all that sort of thing. I make the joke every once in a while. I, I, I say, you know what? If we, if we wanted to add a little brightness, I, we're probably going to have to add, you know, some videos of puppies and kittens. Um, that that's about the only thing I can think of the, for people to click on, because as you said, everybody's clicking, clicking. You know, talking about social media. What what's been the good 
And there, let me start with this one, actually. Yeah, what's been the good of social media? How has it helped journalism? Well, I think it's helped journalism research first, like to be able to go onto social media and search for experts and profiles and public opinion has been really like game changing for many, many journalists. Um, so I think that has been really helpful. It's also an amazing distribution network. Um, we are able to reach so many readers through, the, through social media and online without the cost of print distribution or, um, uh, or some other like traditional method of distribution. So it's, it's had a lot of positives. Um, All right. What about the negatives? What's, uh, what are a couple of the really bad things that social media has, how it's hurt journalism? Yeah, well, I think it's um, social media is very hard on nuance. Things that are nuanced or complicated tend not to do well on social media. Um, there's a Jonathan Haidt article that appeared this year in The Atlantic about why the past 10 years have been so dumb. And he, he's a social psychologist and he talks a lot about how the 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 social media with its, with its kind of a reaction architecture, so likes, retweets, shares, that reaction architecture drives a lot of, uh, is driven by negative emotion. And I think that has hurt journalism, but like there's also things going on in the country and the politics that hurt the whole country and journalists are one of the, um, one of the groups that suffer. So like the, the vitriol, the nastiness, I mean, well, think about, for example, like, and, and I'm, I gotta find the statistic, but uh, you know, you're about finding the truth. All of us journalists are, but you are about fact checking anybody who states anything. And I, I think I'd remember reading that you know one of the challenges with dealing with the information that's on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram is that for every factual piece of information, there's like nine or ten you know, pieces of misinformation and lies. And so it's almost like we're just, we're battling that. That's what it feels like. We're bet like every time I put a report on, on Twitter of something that happened, here's the facts. There's 10 stories about it that are conspiracy theories and lies. Absolutely. And I think this is being done uh, purposefully to kind of flood the zone with misinformation. If people are so overwhelmed and overloaded with information, a lot of it false, and they don't have the the knowledge or the capacity to detect what's false and what's true. The typical reaction is just to withdraw and unplug, and and that absolutely hurts journalism. I mean, I see journalism as a service profession. We're collecting information to give it to our audience. Um, at Politifact, we say so they can govern themselves in a democracy. But on the broadest scale, it's journalists are giving people information so they can live their lives. And if people can't discern what is what is credible journalism from misinformation, just things fall apart. So it's a dangerous moment. All right. So I, I was going to ask this later, but let's jump into it. Is I've asked this of almost all the guests, which is, is it on us as journalists to explain ourselves and what we do should we be on a pr campaign helping people understand you know what's news and what's fake news but who we are 
because it, it you know one of the people I spoke with uh, David Plasis of the Tennessean he brought up a statistic I didn't even know I went over and looked at it that one out of every five Americans only one out of five Americans have ever met a journalist so most people never met a journalist they don't even know what we are is it on us it, you know to go out there and, and market ourselves is that should that be part of my job I think we absolutely have to do PR for our industry because right now it feels like nobody else is going to do it. You know, we're not going to talk about it. And I think it's also an ethical journalism practice um, to explain yourself. So, you know, at PolitiFact, we have a, a, a long uh, story on our website that explains all of our processes and how we do everything, how we determine the ratings, how we select items to fact check how we handle corrections, who owns us, where our money's from. And I just think that's absolutely critical. And to, to, to this day, I'm still surprised with some of the biggest media organizations in the country, how hard it is to find that kind of information for them. Like they just don't, they, if it's online, sometimes it's different places, it's not put together, it's not written in a compelling format. Sometimes it's out of date. And it's just like, why can't these, you know, big media companies um, be more transparent with their audience online? And, and I think there's like, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but like there's there are some parts of our industry that have a lot of arrogance that don't feel like they need to explain themselves or, you know, and like that is only going to hurt us in the end. I just I really think I hope that journalists are like having a moment of humility in these past few years when we've been so attacked and vilified by some quarters that, um, you know, we, we need to be, we need to be humble about what journalism is capable of doing. And we need to be humble about serving our audiences because I think journalism is essentially a service profession. Yeah, no, definitely. I wanted to ask you about, uh, because Pointer does what you guys do, the lie of the year. And, um, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is so, I was reading about how you, you try to decide what's going to be the lie of the year. I mean, how many people are in that room? It's, I just want to know how many people are in that room as you're deciding and some years it might be obvious and other years it's not, I don't know. What's that process? Right. Well, the top editors for PolitiFact get together, um, and there's about three or four of us and, um, we think about who are the finalists and some years it's quite obvious and we're not going to do any anything else um other years and this was earlier like lately the past couple of years the choices have been obvious and it wasn't going to be anything else in previous years sometimes there was a real contest um and we would bring the whole staff in and we'd go through the fact checks and we'd talk about it um but more recently, there have been like two or three big contenders every year. And it was like, what are we going to choose? I mean, between like um, the, 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 the widespread conspiracy theories around election fraud and the misinformation about COVID vaccines, um, we've just seen a lot of lies that are really going to the heart of our system of governance and our own individual health. I mean, it's been like, it, it, it's been one of the most intense years of my career as a fact checker. You're listening to The Reporter Studio, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. 
We're talking with Angie Holen, Editor-in-Chief of PolitiFact from the Pointer Institute. We're talking about the fact-checking organization and the challenges of finding facts in a world that is so divisive today. You can learn more about her and PolitiFact on our website, thereporterstudio.com. You can also watch a video of this conversation. It's on YouTube at The Reporter Studio. We're going to get back to our chat, but first, just a reminder, we have a new podcast coming out later in June of 2022. Further into the future, things are going to become more uncertain. And the people who are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground. And that's going to result dense. in a significant sea level rise. Maybe Tackle this issue point. and address it in a meaningful way. We're seeing by events that we can't predict, we can project things. And then that's five, six, seven people. And the change group that is more privileged and that is not dealing with climate effects on a regular Anybody basis. Anybody to be suspicious of people who claim to know what Miami will look like in 10 or 20 years, let alone 50 years. No one can guess what exactly will happen in 50 years except that South Florida will likely not look much like it does today. The oceans will have risen, flooding will be a bigger challenge, and things are likely to be hotter. Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, we ask the question, what will Miami look like in 50 years? What will happen and how will we prepare? We spoke with researchers, politicians, and advocates about their fears for the future. You know, it's gonna be harder to anticipate what is going to happen from day to day. And the people who are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground in very dense urban landscapes. And that's going to result in a significant sea level rise, maybe adding 20% to those numbers I just gave you. We also spoke with members of Gen Z. We can project them, but we really don't know what this climate catastrophe is going to look like. No matter what, that's not in your control. And I think that you know, for acknowledging the problem now, we can definitely stop it from becoming much worse. We want to better our society, naturally. I think everyone does. The question of the future, what can we expect? Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, comes out June 2022. You can learn more about the podcast at planetearth2072.com or on Facebook. Again, it's out late June of 2022. Let's get back to our conversation with Angie Holen of PolitiFact. She has a few thoughts on what we journalists can do better to represent ourselves to the public. I don't know if this is just me. Um, I wondered from your experience what you've seen, but... Even before I was, you know, covering politics, I mean, the career going back 25 years, um, it just seems to me, uh, but I don't have any data to back it up. I'm just going by what I've been watching, that politicians, either side, anywhere, that um, are becoming more brazen. Like, there was a time when if someone said something and it was reported that's not true, it, that could be scandalous in of itself. 
And then the politician is backtracking. Oh, I didn't mean it or I didn't say it that way. And now I'm watching politicians just say whatever they want to say. And they keep pushing that, you know, as if they've accepted that as the truth. And no matter how many reporters challenge them, they keep pushing that. They keep pushing that. Is that, am I, am I imagining things? No, not at all. Okay. Okay, good. All right. It's not just, (laughs) you know, a lot of the way that politicians used to be um, shamed by the media when they said something false is it was based around social norms. And I mean, you use the word scandalous. I mean, that's based on expectations around what upstanding behavior is. And um, I think, uh, Donald Trump in particular shattered those norms. Like he showed politicians they could withstand being called out by the press and still be um, successful. Although some would say Trump's loss in 2020 sh- showed that he did ultimately pay a price. Um, I think we are still figuring that out. But I think the the I think tr- Trump, you know, because he came from this entertainment and real estate background, he just had a really different approach to being called on lying. And um, it has had the unfortunate result of creating a trend and more politicians are doing what he did. I had a conversation with a coworker who's uh, a young millennial. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I told them, I said, how, how the world has changed. There was a guy a long time ago who ran for office named Gary Hart and his political career ended one day on one little story. I said, that happens today, no big deal. Um, I wanted to ask you about another program, too, that I was uh, just starting to read on, is Expert Voices Together. What is that? Yeah. Expert Voices Together is uh, a project that originated at George Washington University at their Institute for um, uh, Democracy, Data, and Politics. And what it is doing is trying to take a research approach to preventing online harassment of journalists. I mean, and that is, it's been a huge phenomenon that has just uh, happened in, I don't know, it's really taken off in the past uh, five to 10 years where journalists uh, doing their jobs are um, targeted for intimidation and uh, harassment by um, sometimes anonymous people on the internet, sometimes not anonymous, sometimes well-known people. And um, so Expert Voices Together is looking at how to support journalists who face these kind of attacks. And we are working on um, creating a paradigm for how newsrooms can protect reporters who are facing attacks. And um, it's been really interesting because like there are not any easy solutions in this area because part of being a journalist is you're public facing, um, you're out there. So you can't insulate yourself from some of these attacks. Um, But what we found is that newsrooms can take steps to support the journalists who face the attacks so that um, the journalists uh, will have feelings of safety and be able to continue to do their jobs. It's in the early stages, but it's been very promising. And I think um, the work is going to continue over the next couple of years as we try to develop more strategies to um, pro- to protect journalists, but really to protect, as the name implies, all kinds of voices of expertise, because there really has been an attack on expertise online that is just as concerning as the attacks on journalists. 
I feel for all of my brothers and sisters out there in, in journalism who go out into the field. I'm, I sit in a studio, so I have a little bit of safety. People attack me online. I've learned to it just bounces off of me. Let me. Well, I think the online attacks are very serious. No, no, I, I, they, no you're absolutely right. I think that I've just gotten to the point where I, I don't know. I, I would be more intimidated if I was out in the field and somebody approaches me. I just feel in my studio, I feel safe and I feel in control and it's my studio. And if I had to throw somebody out, you know, but, but yeah, no, no. And I agree with you. I do. And I've also been lucky. I haven't had some of the ugliness I've seen other reporters go through. Um, At worst, people try to figure out what side I'm on. I don't know why, but they do. Callers call in. Is he left? Is he right? We don't know which I'll take that as a compliment. You know, I just want to finish up with this. I want to come back to what we were talking about earlier about reporters and what we should be doing to help educate people about us, our job, what we do. So you're talking to, and that's what I'm trying to reach, are people, non-journalists, and help them understand us. What do you say to them? If you had the chance to sit in front of somebody and you know, and, and maybe they don't like you. Maybe they're like, hey, I don't, yeah, journalists, you're fake. You're fake news. I don't like, how do you approach that person? What do you say to them? At least begin that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I people come from so, so many different places in our kind of information ecosystem. And I think I, I really want to approach people where they're at. So I would say for people who um, feel very hostile to journalism, I would say, why don't you, Um, find the reporter or the news organization that you dislike the least and follow them, like read them or watch them or listen to them, whatever the genre is. And like really have a relationship with that news organization and see how it does over time. Um, I often hear from the public, like, I don't know what to trust. Um, And again, um, you know, I think we need to, I think I would tell the public look for, news organizations that have track records for credible reporting. Look for news organizations that tell you how and why they make their decisions around journalism. Um, Look for news organizations that have some seriousness and some nuance. Um, I try to remind them that like journalism is not entertainment. It's not something to like, you know, so you like engage with it for a set amount of time and then you leave feeling really amused or entertained or great. I mean, journalism is trying to teach the public about the important issues of our lives. So it's, unfortunately, it's not always going to be fun. So, so true. Also, please know the difference between a journalist and a commentator. That's a good one. (laughs) That's great. That's the one I, just keep remembering what this person's doing and that person's doing, two different things. Angie, I appreciate the time and the insight. Thank you so, so much for being on the Reporter Studio. Thank you for having me. been listening to this week's episode of the reporter studio and our conversation with angie holen editor-in-chief of politifact from the pointer institute you can learn more about politifact on our website thereporterstudio.com and watch the video of this conversation all our conversations it's on youtube at the reporter studio 
And I want to know, what do you think about fact checkers? How valuable are they to the reporting process? Or if you are anti-news media and you believe that we're all fake, what do you think? I still want to hear from you. Really, I do. But be, you know what? If you're going to, don't post just hate. Ask a sincere question because I really want to help you understand who we are and what we do as journalists. As a journalist, I cannot say enough how much I appreciate having PolitiFact there because we live in a strange time where people are basically creating the truth that they want and denying all facts without an ounce of remorse. Anyway, coming up next week on The Reporter Studio. A failure for me happens in milliseconds. You know, you miss something and you have to wait again for it to come back around. My successes has been the sum of failures. The worst thing a photographer can do is not to be surprised. I think if you don't, in your process, in your practice, if you're not surprised, then you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Carl Juice, photojournalist for the Miami Herald, he has some fascinating stories, as most photojournalists do, about covering the news from behind the lens. Remember, find our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk again next week.